the arts report on CITR 101.9 for August 8th. Today on the arts report, arts in the Olympics, the queer arts festival, and 16 deadly sins, the Sin City Art Fetish Show. This is Megan, and we are on the Arts Report for CITR 101.9, or you may be listening to us on CITR.ca. Today on the Arts Report, we're going to be talking about the Queer Arts Festival Visual Art Party, Turkey in the Woods, 
a play by Jan Derbyshire for the Queer Arts Festival, and 16 Deadly Sins, which is the Sin City Fetish Night uh, art party that's still going on at uh, the Fall Gallery and Tattooing Friend of the Show. But first and foremost, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this little sporting event that's happening right now, but it's called the Olympics. And uh, Vancouver is familiar with the Olympics from last year. And one of the things that happened alongside the sports is the culture. So the city gets to show off its arts and culture, and often it's a way to celebrate or excuse or uh, add to or satisfy. There's so many ways to look at it. The uh, cultural needs of people who maybe aren't into sports or uh, to use the money that's supposedly supposed to come in through uh, all the amazing tourism that happens uh, during the Olympics. But I'm not an expert, uh, but we actually happen to have an expert uh, or someone who is great at talking to experts, uh, Andy Longhurst from The City. Andy, are you there? I am. How's it going, Megan? Good. I'm just going to turn you down a little bit. Sorry. I'm very excited about my first on-air phone call. Um, (laughs) And as I'm sure all the listeners are when someone does something for the first time on air. But um, you, I, I asked you if you had any info that you could share with our listeners about um, the uh, Olympics and art or what's happening, you pointed me uh, towards a couple of resources. Um, Do you want to tell me a little bit about um, the militantcity.wordpress.com? Yes, this is a uh, a site and a project that I came across uh, just doing a little uh, research into a, a little mini series um, that I uh, just finished producing over the last two episodes of the city um, on not specifically just on arts in the Olympics, but um, on the Olympics in London in general. Um, but I came across the website and it's the militantcity.wordpress.com and it's an ongoing research um, project into the politics of critical art in uh, in two Olympic cities, London and Barcelona. So looking at how um, art is configured to create um, uh, critical or antagonistic space in relation to the Olympics. So there's some interesting stuff up there, and they've done uh, some interesting um, different uh, curated um, shows and other projects around um, taking a critical look at what the Olympics um, do to cities and a lot of it has to do especially around um, the IOC puts um, really strict demands on cities to ensure that um, advertising and there's brand protection and kind of, and we saw this with Vancouver where it's kind of the absurdity of um, basically clearing all of the visual space in cities to um, be only for the, the official brands. Yeah, and uh, another thing that, you know, I kind of quickly mentioned in my intro there was that I found that uh, there is often a lot of conversation and support and dissent around whether to bring uh, the Olympics to your town. And one of the the ways that, uh, you know, we're often told one of the benefits, well, it's just not about sports and money. It's also about cultural funds and people seeing what your city has to offer in a well-rounded way. Um in the light of the London Olympics, do you have any thoughts on post our Olympics in 2010, what type of uh, changes, if any, or benefits we've had with the kind of the cultural Olympiad, with the, the cultural events we saw during the Olympics? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, and this is something that I think in the, in the next two clips uh, we'll hear from two different perspectives, um, but within the Olympics there is always this cultural Olympiad that comes as part of the package. And as Chris Shaw, um, who is author of Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games, which is in the clip that I think we're going to play first, you're going to play first, um, talking about that um, as part of the package, but typically it's not something that's privately funded. It's usually funded primarily, if not exclusively, through um, the the public, um, the state. So it's part of it, and I think there's certainly it's there is money and there is um, funding available for artists and types of different types of production. But it's in many ways it's it's very short lived, and that's uh, the point that um, Chris Shaw makes is that it's sort of a, um, a short-lived phenomenon and doesn't necessarily have a legacy. Okay, so we are going to hear uh, Chris Shaw talk a little bit about the legacy of uh, arts in the Olympics. The IOC demands that um, there be no, no visible protests, and, and most cities were only too happy to comply. For example, we had various, various signage bylaws here in Vancouver that took a lawsuit to, to soften. Same thing is happening in London. Basically, they, they commercialized the public space for the, the, the game sponsors. So Coca-Cola and Visa and RBC and all the various game sponsors get advertising in public spaces, commercialization of the commons. At the same time, your ability to dissent or to put on any kind of uh, counter, counter to the games is severely constrained. So here in Vancouver, they were trying to put people into protest zones. They had that by the signage bylaw that would have restricted civil liberties significantly, plus a massive police presence. Um, and there was also in both both London and here in Vancouver and in other Olympic cities, uh, there is the harassment of dissidents. There is the uh, surveillance, constant surveillance. And in our case, we had the members of the Olympic Resistance Network were routinely followed, sometimes visited uh, practically daily in the months leading up to, to the games. Uh, strongly suspected telephones and other electronic devices were, were, were tapped. Uh, certainly in my case, they seemed to know where I was all the time, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of whether I had communicated that to anyone particularly. Um, and the, they, keep, they, they keep very, very uh, close tabs on anyone they consider to be a game dissident. <clears throat> when you consider that their their main focus is supposed to be protecting from serious external threats, because the, the IOC is terrified of another Munich, and and as are our various governments, what they end up doing is they end up the, the threat ultimately becomes usually one of, of of protest, which casts the games in a bad light. So again, security becomes becomes this cumbersome thing, and civil liberties get tossed to the wind. Um, they make a lot of promises about arts legacies, about inclusivity, about uh, and, and those tend to go by the wayside fairly quickly. Uh, the arts, the arts legacies do exist, but they are contributed again by government. They don't come from the IOC, so you get to make your own arts Olympiad to go with your Olympics. And that was Chris Shaw talking about the uh, cultural Olympiad uh, descent and public. Sp- Bases, um, Andy, when he was talking about you know uh, basically the corporatization of private space versus you know what we can do with public space via protest or art or I mean is that what uh, Militant City is talking about when they're talking about the Olympics being a neoliberal? 
I think that's uh, a big part of it. I, I, just to bring it back to Vancouver mm-hmm. and the experience um, leading up to the games, one really striking example, and, and Chris touched on it in the beginning of that, of that audio clip, um, was a mural that was uh, put up in the downtown east side outside of the frontage of a gallery called the Crying Room. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but it was of the Olympic rings, and they were turned, four of the rings were sad faces, and one of them was a happy face. And it was sort of to, to highlight the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't really see benefits from this, and yet they still pay for it, um, or pay for it in other ways. Um, and uh, they got a notice from the city of Vancouver saying that this was being considered graffiti, even though the gallery had used this frontage uh, for murals consistently. So, and then they, the city denied that it was about the content, but the, the the basic fact was that it was still inherently anti-Olympic. So, well, there's a those, lot of um, yeah, those type of things become issues. Yeah, there's a lot of you know even around the symbols themselves, what you can do with them. Um, you know, we have certain in theory certain rights around using art to satirize, criticize, and kind of. Um, you know, common common use of, of these symbols, but they're so tight-lipped um, uh, and tight, tight-fisted about about how we can use them. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, Tara at the Gam Gallery, who's becoming quickly a, a friend of the show. We keep turning to her for various things. <laughs> Tara Hogue. Uh, right? Yeah, so I, I talked to um, Tara Hogue. Uh, this was back in June, I believe. And um, we had a, a long discussion, and she was one of the voices featured in a past um, episode of The City where we were talking about uh, art and galleries and neighborhood change. And um, But she did talk briefly about the legacy of the Cultural Olympiad um, and the fact that you know right after the Cultural Olympiad, much of the gaming, provincial gaming money, uh, ceased to exist, or even the provincial government um, pulled back a lot of the gaming money. So it was, you know, a lot of this buildup and hubris around, um, you know, the game's legacy for artists, and then they turn around and it's gone. <laughs> so that that's, uh, I think, going to be featured in this next clip. All right, let's go. What's your impression of this city and how it values artists or um, in ways maybe chooses not to value artistic production and and creative work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the city does value artists, but in some ways I guess it depends on what you, uh, how you define value. Um, I think that um, myself, I've only been living in Vancouver for a few years, and so when I first moved to Vancouver, it was all the cultural Olympiad stuff, and there was a lot of interesting things happening, um, but uh, obviously it sort of swung in the opposite direction in terms of funding quickly after that event, and um, we're still definitely in a hard time in terms of supporting artists. On the one hand, I think that the city um, does what it can, but is battling sort of a really insane real estate market. And she was talking a little bit about the, the real estate as well and the, the market that's being made around there. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting um, also talking about development in real estate and something that if listeners are interested, um, talked at length about in, in uh, the context of the London Games. 
but that's also one of the things that uh, is usually um, part of the Olympics is it puts um, pressure and speculative pressures on lower-income neighborhoods and for redevelopment and and uh, different types of use, land uses that are not necessarily for people who are lower-income artists or lower-income in general. So certainly interesting, but... Um, uh, Certainly, I think her talking about the legacy is an important one to keep in mind that we still haven't seen the level of funding um, brought back, even though the, the provincial government seems to think they're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, well, government always thinks they're doing a great job. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in a little bit on the critical uh, and artistic side of the Olympics, uh, or lack thereof, if you wanted to argue that. Um, can you give us a little preview of what's coming up uh, next week? You just had your show last night, and so mm-hmm. is there anything that's coming up uh, special next week? Um, well, we've got quite a bit of stuff in the works. Um, not necessarily next week, but in the future, we've got a full-length discussion with Andrea Reimer, who's a city councillor and um, other content around, um, oh gosh, um, there's a big Occupy uh, conference going on or about to occur in in Detroit, Um, just following up on the Occupy movement and uh, lots of other stuff. It's it's hard to uh, narrow it down, but lots of good stuff to look forward to. So thanks for the opportunity to talk on the Arts Report. Oh, no problem. We are always happy to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Megan. All right, so we are going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to talk about the 16 deadly sins. Stay tuned. And thanks very much to Andy from the city. Uh, Here's a little info on the city to wet your whistle for next week. The question... What kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. Join me, your host, Andrew Longhurst, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. for The City, an hour dedicated to critical discussions of urban issues. Live on CITR 101.9 FM and CITR.ca. For more info, visit thecityfm.org. Distance between Vancouver and Buenos Aires, 11,000 kilometers. From August 31st to September 9, the Vancouver Latin American Film Festival will bring Buenos Aires right at home. www.vlaff.org And we are back and uh, I just got a message from uh, Spencer Lindsay, CITR uh, volunteer programmer and student exec extraordinaire, uh, to let you guys know that Friday is the 100th day of the protest to preserve the Musqueam ancient village and burial site of Cessnam. Uh, Join the March Friday morning at Safeway, Granville and 70th. And uh, as you know, UBC is on uh 
Musqueam territory, uh, unceded. Uh, and so if you're interested in um, the CES non-protest, please check that out and uh, learn a little bit more online and then head down Friday morning. All right, all right. Well, uh, you may have seen it on the Arts Reports web post uh, this afternoon you can check out uh, our show preview blog at www.citr.ca and you can just click on the category arts report um but we have a little bit of sexy art for you yes yes just in the background there is one of sin city's previews for their halloween show one of their famous notorious Shows uh, and uh, nights where you can go and dance in uh, kinky gear or fetish gear or just a little leather. But whatever it is, you better be dressed up. And that's one of the best things about Sin City Nights. They've been running for about 11 years. And um, DJ Pandemonium is a, a well respected DJ in the city and a friend of the station. And he decided that after 11 years, that there was a community and an aesthetic and an amazing set of artists and creative people and he wanted to showcase them and he wanted to bring them together uh, in you know beyond social media so from August 3rd to 17th uh, at the Fall Tattooing and Gallery on Seymour it's the 16 Deadly Sins Exotic and Erotic Art Show uh, the art show displays art and photography by participate participants in, in the in the night, and also uh, the community, uh, the alternative fet community, um, and those who appreciate the aesthetic of both. Uh, much of it was arranged or produced for the show itself, and it ranges from a cute pink cartoon pinup to hardcore gore and fantastic art pictures. So. Uh, I sat down and spoke to Isaac, who's the event organizer, uh, as well as two of the artists who participated in the event. Tracy from the Glass City Collective, who put together their own Seven Deadly Sins photo gallery just for the show. And uh, they're a group of women who collaborate on design, photography, even framing. Uh, And I also spoke to Jennifer, who is the woman behind Glitter Machine, who displayed her favorite body paint pieces. She's an airbrush artist. You know, be it uh, tuxedos that you should not, not wear in the rain, uh, and aliens, and even a pink dragon. Uh, These are some of her pieces over the past couple of years. Now, we actually talked for about an hour at the Fall Tattooing and Gallery about Isaac's uh, over 15 years doing, you know, as a DJ and a promoter, and, you know, some of the misconceptions and uh, great things about Sin City Nights and about the FET uh, community in general, the fetish community. But um, what I'm going to show to you now is uh, a few minutes with Jennifer and Tracy. And each of them will tell you a little bit about their works and their background as artists and participants. Now you will be able to listen to the full hour conversation between the three of us up online uh, later this week. And I will post it for all to see on our Facebook and our Twitter and all that fun stuff. But for now, uh, let's start a little bit with Tracy. Tracy Cake. Uh, She is a pink-haired beauty who uh, is one of the people behind the Glass City Collective. And uh, we'll let her tell you a little bit more about her participation in uh, 
16 Deadly Sins. We're here at the Fall uh, Gallery and we are looking at your beautiful collection for the 16 Deadly Sins art show, Some Vice is Nice by Glass City Collective. So Tracy, tell us a little bit about yourself and the collective. Um, hi, I'm uh, Tracy Cake. I'm known locally around as and um, uh, Glass City Collective is a collaborative work between myself and the other co-founder, uh, Zika, um, who is a makeup artist. Also like myself, I'm a makeup artist and a wardrobe stylist. And after collaborating on a few um, group projects we, um, and a few photo shoots, we decided to start a, a bit of a network of artists because we found that a lot of the same people that we were working with were both hair, makeup, but could also model. And sometimes the models were graphic designers and editors. So we decided to all sort of pitch in our efforts and be available to sort of work on collective projects together, like creatives and stuff. So we definitely have a base in the alternative scene. Um, we do everything from, you know, burlesque-inspired stuff or boudoir or, in this case, fetish. Um, we also do all the sort of mainstream stuff as well. We provide sometimes promo girls or burlesque dancers for shows. Um, half the time our models are burlesque dancers, so there's a lot of crossover in the community. Um, and we're a, we're a not-for-profit organization, and um, we're working currently out of a studio in East Van that's been... Um, rather generously gifted to us. So we're working in the East Village factory and um, we sort of are starting up a little studio salon in the front, kind of a workspace where artists in the community could sort of join up the membership, become part of the collective and eventually rent studio space, like rent a chair for an hour for an affordable price. The whole idea is that we wanted a space where people could get together and have a sense of community while they do these things, but not necessarily run a traditional salon. Um, and so we put together the photo shoots and we also do videography. So we've done everything from music videos. We've done a documentary, actually. We provided hair, makeup, and wardrobe for the Legend production uh, from 1,000 Mile Films coming out eventually. And um, in this case, we were given the opportunity to exhibit here, and we did this whole project specifically for the art show. Um, it's a theme of the seven deadly sins. Um, we called it Some Vice is Nice. And there's nine pictures in total, but representing the seven deadly sins. Um, Do you have any yeah. favorite sins as displayed here? <laughs> to be honest, um, I think my very favorite is, we called it Deuce Duel, and it's the two girls um, up at the top with the one. That was to lo uh, sort of to go for envy. Um, her dragging her by the hair out of the bathroom was pretty fun. Um, and um, I think the other one favorite is uh, Rain, Rain, Rain up at the top. Um, that was a, suspen or, yes, a suspension shoot. And um, it was to sort of show greed and how one can get wrapped up quite easily in things. So we wanted it to be, you know, easy to grasp, but also something that made you think a little bit to represent the seven deadly sins. So we actually did the whole shoot in 12 hours. We had four photographers, four models, two makeup, one hair, a wardrobe stylist. And some of those people crossed over. For example, my, the co-founder Zika, she modeled. Uh, she did a lot of the editing. She did photo choosing with me. She also did makeup for half the girls. Um, I did all the wardrobe, I did makeup for half the girls, I helped organize, you know, the overall look and where we were going to shoot. This is all shot on location at our new studio in the East Village factory. Um, and this space will be available for people to rent at hopefully a very reasonable price, especially come to us if you're a not-for-profit or if you're another charitable organization, say you need to get a calendar done. We're, you know, we're really open and we definitely want to expand our philanthropic side. But the whole point of the collective is that we've got a space where everybody kind of you know, earns their own way. So while we come together and do creatives, you know, 
we eventually, you know, people sort of meet other connections through that so as far as getting work for their craft. Um, although, yeah, we're working on getting, you know, bringing the whole collective up so people know that we're very hireable out of here and there's a whole rotating cast and crew of people. So, and that we're open to working with new people all the time, especially alternative friendly, you know, that's a tough one to find in this industry. Are you, uh, so what is your philosophy behind portraying uh, the fetish lifestyle or the alternative uh, side of of sex and sexuality? (laughs) Well, funny enough, a lot of us are women putting this together, so that provides us a very interesting perspective. We are pretty much all active in going out into some of the fetish nights like Sin City or Noir or some of the cases the girls are burlesque dancers. We want to portray what's really us about it. We want to show that there's glamour and there's sexiness, but there's not necessarily just vulgarity. Um, We don't mind being a little rude. I mean, we've got a complete nude in one of ours. You know, it's not about that, but it's just putting that twist on it that, you know, we're sort of putting forward something that as hair, makeup, and wardrobe and models, we're very, very proud of, and it's not just someone else's take. You know, we want to sort of put it together in a way that shows... You can be naughty, but, you know, that doesn't make you a hussy, for example. <laughs> you know, you can play around with things like waist cinchers and that these things are very, very accessible, you know. Uh, sexy, but it's just something that, you know, you can give it a try. Hence why we do, like, boudoir shoots, you know. Girls that have not got any modeling experience and want to do an interesting photo shoot, you know, we're available for bookings, you know. Now, uh, one last question. Mm-hmm. Did you have any um, surprises, difficulties, <laughs> or uh, fun twists of fate when you were doing the shoot for the... Uh, 16 Deadly Sins? Well, that's a very good question. I think for us, um, it was one of our first hands-on projects where we had to take something from conceptualization right to the walls. So framing, that's baseboard molding that we put together. And we was a total collaborative effort. Uh, my boyfriend helped cut all the pieces uh, from right from the ground up because we're on a budget we had to do things as affordable as possible but yet still come out with something that we were ultimately really proud of displaying i think i'm going to steal that idea that's a great idea (laughs) baseboard molding wood glue and uh uh, black spray paint (laughs) that's awesome it took it took a month to put together but you know we're pretty happy and everybody got a chance to sort of be featured and yeah come on down and check us out and that was Tracy Cake talking about their Seven Deadly Sins entry into the Sixteen Deadly Sins. Uh, if you want to know more about why it's called Sixteen Deadly Sins, I will be posting an extended interview, uh, as I said, uh, later this week, early next week. Now, Tracy is uh, to be found uh, at www.facebook.com slash Collective. Um, She may be one of the few people in the world who talks faster than me, uh, and I tip my hat to her. Um, One of the things she mentioned in that uh, interview is, you know, talking about women and uh, vulgarity. And when you go to the show at the Fall Tattooing and Gallery, you'll see uh, see some images that some people might find disturbing. uh, But you'll also see some really beautiful uh, men and women. And um, actually, Isaac was talking about how he was a little disappointed there weren't more men involved. He said there are tons of men involved in the fetish community. But uh, we talked a little bit about the idea of women being seen and looked at and and how maybe they're more comfortable with the glamour and the fashion uh, on the positive side of that um, dichotomy. And so, uh, you know, he hope that we will be doing this again and they will be featuring a lot more men. Uh, so that is good for the ladies and for the, uh, the queer men out there. Um, one of the, the things also, I have to do a shout out to Tristan Risk, who is a local burlesque performer and model. And she's in, um, I think she's definitely the most featured model, uh, a favorite 
among the alternative community. Um, also, some really cool political art. There was uh, one artist, uh, Michael, uh, who, uh, sorry, Michael R. Barrick, or Atratus, and he, uh, or Tratus, most likely, uh, he is the official photographer for Sin City, and he took the photo booth uh, photos which are the only way you can take photography at these nights, um, you know, because it's uh, it's about uh, fantasy and it is about uh, privacy and people being able to let loose. People come in from the suburbs and sometimes and take the take a load off. And uh, he took the photo booth and he turned them into some really amazing collages. And uh, I shouldn't be telling you this because I want to buy some, but, um, you know, taking conservative uh, figures like Queen Victoria and uh, creating portraits out of uh, these pictures of unclad people. I thought that was really quirky and cheeky and and really uh, kind of the style of of the whole show. Uh, Another artist that did some really beautiful work, again with Tristan Risk, was uh, Jennifer Little. And she is, uh, you know, the main the main operator behind Glitter Machine. And uh, she does airbrush body paint as well as glamour makeup. And the images are quite striking. Uh, you can see on the post we did today on CITR.ca, should be up right now, a few samples of both Tracy and Jennifer's work. Uh, as well as links to more photos. But, you know, we're talking silver punks, we're talking pink dragons, and uh, a little Geiger. Uh, But you know what? Let's let Jennifer tell you all uh, about it. A lot of different people, though. Like Tracy, with her collectives, I I bring in a lot of different hairstylists, photographers, um, Tracy styles for me sometimes, too. And I work with a lot of different artists and makeup artists as well. Uh, but yeah, first and foremost, Glitter Machine is me. <laughs> and you are Jennifer Little. And what brought you uh, to this line of work, this community? Uh, well, I've been a makeup artist for 11 years. And body, body paint was kind of a natural progression. It just sort of happened from the face to the body. And I've always been very fond of the human form. And uh, it's, I think I came into contact with this community through Tracy actually her and I went to high school together so we've gone we go way back and I painted Trish who uh, Trish is with Restricted Entertainment I painted her up as a zombie for a photo shoot once and she came home and Isaac saw her and was like oh my god who did this and then the rest just kind of fell into place so yeah so, um, can you tell us a little bit about the collection you have here? I see pink dragons, I see <laughs> silver punks, I see uh, a little Geiger, little aliens there. Um, can you tell me, is this uh, collection put together for the show, or are these some of your favorite works you've done lately? Or A little bit of both. Um, some of them are, are classics that people just love. My silver uh, mohawk girl there, that one's probably about two and a half pushing three years old but I absolutely love it and people comment on that one all the time that's actually the one that I have on my business card Um, the pink dragon was shown first here I've kind of been sitting on that one hoarding it for a little while because I wanted to release it at this show Um, the sugar skull series is something that I've been working on and I'm still working on I absolutely love the Dia de los Muertos the sugar skulls candy skulls and uh, so that's a collection that I'm working on and I do like the blend of the body paint with the beauty makeup uh, whenever I do any kind of body paint I generally even if it's really theatrical like the dragon 
it's still a glamour face. And I like, I think it's because of my makeup background that I automatically still want some beauty there. Uh, and I think it softens the blow that you're staring at a naked person. Sometimes people can be a little bit like, oh, I don't know where to look, but it's a canvas. The whole body's a canvas. My models are really comfortable, obviously, with themselves. And for the most part, they're never fully nude. I'll have pasties, perhaps, or a tiny string thong, or um, even a piece of tape, <laughs> just so that there's no straps. <laughs> What is the number one challenge when you are doing, say, a full body effect? Uh, is there any, uh, you know, great tricks or tips? Uh, you don't have to share all your industry secrets, <laughs> but that you uh, that you have learned over the years. Um, definitely making sure that my models are fed and hydrated. Um, it's a long process. How long does it take normally to do uh, a body? It depends. Um, Say this tuxedo. How long did this tuxedo, tuxedo work? It was about a six and a half hour paint with two artists painting her at once. So, so 12 hours altogether. Yeah, that was a big one. The dragon was about the same. Uh, the Giger was about the same. This one wasn't quite as long, but it's not as detailed. That, like Giger has a ton of detail. The tuxedo has a ton of detail. So it's usually anywhere from about two to seven hours per. Uh, and for makeup, beauty makeup, I usually take about half an hour to 45 minutes per, depending on the, on the detail and whatnot. Did you uh, have any sort of philosophy? You, you mentioned a little bit about the beauty in the face and kind of that that shock of, of the nude body and kind of softening that, do you have, uh, would you consider that's your philosophy or do you have a wider philosophy when it comes to working with the ladies and um, painting them up? Just confidence is key and it's very liberating. Um, and I've had some, I mean, these are obviously all models, but I have had private clients where it's something that it's on their bucket list. Mm -hmm that they just, they really want to do it. Maybe they've just lost a bunch of weight or they're just coming out of a divorce or something and they want to make themselves feel really, really amazing and do something completely different. And they're so happy at the end of it. And that just makes me feel really good that I can give that something different and creative to people. I see a lot of pink too. Yeah, there's a lot of pink here for sure. Um, pink and black is kind of my colors for glitter machines. So, and it also has like the black has that, that sexy edge, but then the pink is fun and lightens it up a bit. So that's lovely. Now, where can we find you, you know, online or at a studio? Well, I'm freelance, so I'm all over the place. I do work out of my home in the West End. I also teach at Blanche McDonald's, uh, which is where I went 11 years ago. So that's kind of full circle, which is great. Uh, but glittermachine.ca and littlemakeupmachine.com. So I try and separate the, the glitter machine, the more elaborate uh, entertainment stuff, and then the more conservative weddings, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you very much uh, again to Jennifer. And you can find her, as she said, at glittermachine.ca. You can find Tracy at facebook.com slash glasscityofficial. So I'm just correcting myself from earlier. Glasscityofficial on facebook.com. And the works are for sale. They're super uh, cheap, actually. Uh, I mean inexpensive would be the word um but uh it'll be running until august 17th at the fall tattooing gallery just off the granville uh, skytrain station dunsmere exit and they're at the front of the station as well they support a lot of really cool local events 
And, uh, you know, one of the things that Isaac wanted to emphasize was that the, you know, the Sin City Knights and in general, the alternative community, you know, it's a lot about fun. So don't be intimidated. Please do come out and see the art and be titillated. And, um, you know, maybe if he's there, you can talk to him. I uh, have coined him the godfather of sin. Vancouver's Godfather of Sin and again uh, check out the longer material that we'll be posting to figure out how that came together Um, so thank you very much to those guys now uh, we are going to take another quick break and when we return um, you know we will talk a little bit about the Queer Arts Festival talk a little bit about uh, the Art Festival and their theme, Random Acts of Queerness, as well as uh, a show that I will be attending tomorrow night, very excited about, Turkey in the Woods. So please stay tuned, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of the break. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. The Rio Theatre is your independent East Vancouver theatre, playing first-run feature films, independent film screenings, as well as live events. Every Friday night, there are featured midnight cult classics on the big screen, and no one can beat the Rio for their cheap date Tuesdays. Be at the Rio August 17th for Dead on Film, the zombie short film competition where 10 zombie shorts will be shown, but only one will survive. Tickets are $10, doors at 9 p.m., This month at the Rio, your Friday late-night movies are Wet Hot American Summer on August 10th, Dumb and Dumber on August 24th, and Dirty Dancing on August 31st. Other attractions at the Rio for August include the world's largest touring circus sideshow, Hell's a-Poppin', a sideshow review on August 19th. Extra Vancouver and the Friends of Dorothy series presents a special screening of Mean Girls on August 22nd. And don't miss Dungeons & Dragons, a live comedy experience. Join Vancouver's best comedic performers as they quest for glory and snacks on August 29th. For more information on all this and more, check out theriotheater.ca. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Hi I'm, Province Enter- Hi, I'm Province Entertainment, Colin with Stuart Dardane. And when I'm looking for a little bit of inspiration to find out where the arts are, I go to CITR's Arts Report on Wednesdays from 5 to 6. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. And uh, just before the break, uh, if you're just tuning in, we were talking about uh, the 16 Deadly Sins art show at the fall and earlier in the hour uh we talked about uh the olympics and arts and those type of critical things Uh, and right now we are going to talk a little bit about the queer arts festival 
that's happening right now and will be happening uh, until the 18th. Uh, last week, we, uh, or we, <laughs> I, uh, visited the uh, Queer Arts Art Party on July 31st, which opened uh, the event. You can actually check out all the artists and uh, events at queerartsfestival.com. And everything is going on at the Roundhouse. Um, now, I was at the event. We have the beautiful uh, playing of Rachel Iwasa in the background. You can hear it right there. There was also some really great music from a, a really cool artist called DJ Tapes, who does uh, work with uh, mixtapes. She was really amazing. And it was sponsored by the Health Initiative for Men. And uh, the Queer Arts Festival uh, is an annual showcase of queer arts, culture, and history. It celebrates the unique creative expressions of, you know, performing artists who identify as queer. Um, that includes uh, performance, workshops, music, dance, theater, media arts, and is presented by the Pride in Art Society. Uh, where people of all walks of life, uh, bisexuals, gay, lesbian, pansexuals, transsexuals, third-gendered, transgendered, two-spirited, questioning, uh, can celebrate their art and their history. Um, so, uh, in our own uh, Barb Snellgrove from Queer FM was MC, and you will hear her in the background <laughs> of uh, the recordings uh, as you heard the traffic in the background of the recordings of the previous interviews, uh, that's what happens when you record near a door in a huge echoey space. Uh, you are hearing people from upstairs getting tattooed. So uh, this year's theme was Random Acts of Queerness for the Curated Visual Arts ex Exhibition. And I talked to board president Joel Klein about his participation in the festival both as board president and as performer. And he also gave us a bit of insight on uh, on the theme, Random Acts of Queerness. And so uh, thank you to Joel, Joel Klein for uh, talking to me at the art party. He was a very busy young man. And here he is talking a little bit about uh, how he got started at the Queer Arts Festival. So my name is Joel Klein. And uh, I've been the board president since April of 2011. I got involved with the festival originally as a singing artist. And I was part of that first group who uh, talked to the original founder of the festival, Robbie Wong, uh, about ways that we could incorporate performing arts into the visual art experience. Uh, originally to get more people coming through to see the visual art, but also because we felt that performing arts, like queer-based performing arts, was an element that was particularly missing from Vancouver Pride. This year, I'm super stoked to be part of the production of Canada's first lesbian-themed opera, which is called When the Sun Comes Out, written by composer Leslie Uyeda and librettist Rachel Rose. That came to be... Um, Last year, our festival theme was Games People Play, and that was to honor the out games that were taking, taking place at the exact same time as the festival. Um, we originally approached Leslie to see if she would be interested in remounting a production of her first opera, which was called Game Misconduct, which was a hockey opera. <laughs> and she... She didn't want to remount that show at this time, 
but she did see the possibility of of writing Canada's first lesbian opera, and we were just really thrilled to be able to support her in that. So um, we got funds together through various granting agencies to commission her to create this work. We spent the last week workshopping it, which just means uh, everyone took their first look at the score. We went through it dramatically with some assistance from director Robert McQueen to see if there were ways that it could be tightened up or made more clear. And now we're giving a semi-staged performance of it this upcoming Thursday, both to show people where we're at at the work, to push us to bring the work to the next level, and to raise funds to be able to put on a complete staged production next year. Well, putting on an opera is uh, a really big undertaking, so it's nice that you're able to do it in these steps. Can you define lesbian opera for me? Sure. Um, This is the first opera that we know of in Canada to have a lesbian-themed story that, well... To, this is the first one to our knowledge that has any out lesbians in it that was uh, as characters um, it's about their story it's about their love story and it, it also more than coincidentally was written by two women who identify as queer uh, they've, I know they were recently asked whether or not the show has a particularly queer aesthetic and in a way, I guess you could say it does, because it's written by queer women. But uh, at the same time, it's, it's just an opera celebrating a lesbian love story from an authentic perspective. It seems like opera has a queer aesthetic. Yes, very much <laughs> like so. It. Yes, I mean, that's true. And it's also, you know, there's the opera queen. Um, the diva. Exactly, yeah. Th- these are all major characters in in the gay comic book you know like th- these are stock characters uh, um, in the gay world there are lots of theories on on why opera is particularly appealing to to largely gay men although it's interesting we've had so many gay women uh, or you know queer women who have been interested in this project um, maybe it's a combination of, of seeing uh, seeing lesbianism portrayed in what's been considered a, a very elite art form, uh, it gives it a very real edge, real perspective. Uh, this show is not an elitist show, though. I mean, it really brings the whole art form back down to earth. It's just a there's a lot of interesting thought in there. Can you tell us a little bit about your role? Do you identify as a lesbian? <laughs> no. I would definitely not identify as any form of lesbian. Um, I didn't want to make any assumptions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, uh, my character, I, I don't want to give away the farm, but no uh, my character is a deeply conflicted character who is married to one of these women. It's a, it's a complicated story having to do with uh, misperceptions, hidden truths, uh, there's, I, I hate to make it sound as dark as it is, but it, it's very, uh, it's a very angst-ridden relationship among these people that's only partially resolved. You were going to tell me a little bit about Random Acts of Queerness, which is this year's theme. 
yes, we chose Random Act of Queerness to celebrate what would be the 100th birthday of John Cage. He was a major figure in American music, but also in, in world, like in Western music, uh, through the middle to the end of the 20th century, and in visual art as well. Uh, his, his main uh, raison d'être, uh, what he really went for in all of his art uh, in the latter half of his life was surrounding indeterminacy, using uh, things like a throw of the dice or um, any other kind of random chance to create art. So we thought, okay, this is his 100th birthday. It's a great opportunity to mix together random acts of kindness with, uh, with this great queer art figure, John Cage. We're part of an international celebration of his 100th birthday. Um, there's, a, there's an endlessly long list of festivals that are devoted to John Cage this year, and we're thrilled to be part of that. Thank you very much to Joel Klein for joining me at the party and uh, get me a drink. Um, uh, you can find out uh, more of the other uh, artists that were part of the visual uh, exhibition. Um, as I mentioned last week, a couple of the artists that uh, I happened to talk to uh, and you can find their interviews on our mix cloud you can just google arts report mix cloud or uh, i just posted their interviews on citr.ca along with some previews of their work uh, one of them who really embraced uh, and had already embraced the randomness was Charisse buckmiller and she presented a revised version of radiant flux which is an exploration of color and language and an expression of connection and otherness. And it is about the uh, unfixedness of identity and uh, especially as her identity as a bisexual woman and how that can be both invisible and, and change. She uses light and shadow and color and proximity to uh, reference that experience. So uh, she also really uh, was uh, a really lovely lady to talk to. So please uh, look for that and you can see more of her work uh, at T. Buckmiller, T-B-U-C-H-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. She has some really cool sculpture there as well. Uh, and someone else, uh, again, you can listen to my quick interview with her, um, who did a, a collection called Bearded Ladies, uh, which were uh, a collection of ladies that she knew that came in and adopted uh, male personas that they chose. And they uh, took some really cool kind of masculine photos. And it's eight color portraits. Uh, they were in prosthetic facial hair um, using, you know, Photoshop and then mounted up and this really masculine kind of framing. Um, she actually plays a, a drag queen, Rose Bush, and sometimes she is Rod Bush, and she is out in Vancouver, maybe even right now, uh, as her documentary filmmaker self and photographer self. And she said it's a lot easier to do so as a middle-aged man than any type of woman. So uh, you can check out more of her work at uh, Rosamond Norbury, 
rosamond.com. And that's R-O-S-A-M-O-N-D-N-O-R-B-U-R-Y.com. And, uh, you know, you can learn a little bit more about the work that she does. She's a, a documentary photographer and filmmaker, as I've mentioned. So this morning... Uh, I got to go to Delaney's and talk briefly with Jen Derbyshire, who is a performer and playwright, um, comedian, filmmaker, uh, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, And she is putting on Turkey in the Woods starting tomorrow and running through uh, next Tuesday. And Turkey in the Woods is a play about hail and peach. And, uh, you know, they are going to Thanksgiving dinner, but it's not a normal type of Thanksgiving dinner at all. Of course, it wouldn't be. That would be a boring play. Um, You know, uh, she talks a little bit about uh, the relationship between Hale and Peach, about family and about growing up. So please uh, enjoy uh, Jen Derbyshire talking about Turkey in the Woods, which is actually running... Uh, starting tomorrow, then uh, through Saturday, and then again on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And all these shows are at the Roundhouse Community Center. So if you go to see any of these shows, please uh, please stop by and check out the art show as well, because it will be there until the 18th. Well, tell me a little bit about Helen Peach. Well, Helen Peach... One of them, I, I always work from a place of missing stories. Like, you know, okay, so we know this story, we know this story. What about this other story? And of course, I can't tell all the missing stories, but this one's about a couple that's been together for 10 years, you know, kind of in the mid-range. And um, one just really wants to get married and one doesn't. And so it's like what happens in a relationship where it works on some level, but could work on a better level. So I think the play is about commitments, but not necessarily in the guise of marriage. And now they go to Thanksgiving dinner, and depending on your expectations, it's either non-traditional or the most traditional. Yes. And they, hijinks ensue. They don't go. Uh, what happens is Hale has been... Uh, told by her therapist, her slightly misguided therapist, that she needs to go back to her family of origin and just figure out why she's so afraid of commitment. But she hasn't been home in 10 years uh, because last time she was home, you know, one of the things that happened was Peach's hair was lit on fire. You know, it was chaos. So she goes back to Thanksgiving only to discover it's not even in the family home. It's in the woods. And near a rifle range and it's just crazy so she goes back with the expectation of trying to get some answers maybe get an apology from her family for certain things that happened maybe find a missing piece of the puzzle and at some point peach finds her there and uh and then something else happens (laughs) well yeah and it's funny you use that word expectations i mean that was what i was interested in talking to you about because you have thanksgiving Okay, right. The most one of the most loaded holidays, except for Christmas, maybe, uh, and Valentine's Day. Uh, you have, you know, so you have your family, you have commitment, you have relationships. So it all seems to kind of have this air of um, expectations, and then expectations 
undermined, which is the heart of, you know, good drama. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the, the expectations that you, you built into the, these characters? Well, you know, f- um, family, right? I mean, we have uh, Henrik Ibsen, um, a playwright who's dead, whose work I love. Um, he says that all families have vital lies. And I've always been really fascinated by that statement as a writer, you know, like, and inside my own family. And I, I think that the expectation for Hale is that she is going to get an apology that she deserves, right? And, you know, families are complex. Nothing's simple. Who did what when? What, is, what was Hale's part in that? What was her mom's part? What was actually going on? Everybody remembers things differently. Like, there is no clarity in families. But at some point... I think to grow up, I think the premise of the play anyway is uh, to grow up, maybe you reject some of the vital lies. Um, maybe that's what Hale finally gets to do. But yeah, she, she goes there thinking it's going to be, you know, you always think it's going to be the nice family dinner. You know, you go home. Like, it's so crazy, right? Like, we expect Christmases to be like Hallmark cards and Thanksgiving dinners to be like they are in the American movies, you know? And they're, they're ne- they never are, but we walk in there going, this is the one that's going to be the turkey's perfect, no one gets drunk, nobody fights, you know, nobody forgets anybody else, nobody says anything wrong. And that's always the expectation. So even Hale, who hasn't been home for 10 years, who's been learning to distance herself from her family to be her own person (laughs) shows up like that she's happy to see them when it starts to unravel she's surprised why why do we get surprised and it's exactly what you're talking about right it's so solid it's like this should look like that and you know you can spend your whole life being disappointed that things don't look like they're supposed to or you get to a place where you go wow I guess I'm just going to take things as they are because this picture is never going to look like I want it to look. It seems like that's a part of growing up as well because you want your family to be a certain way and maybe your partner and your life because you want to be the center of things. But people have other expectations, their own expectations, their own um, you know, insistences about the way they want things to be. Because relationships are relationships and I think the growing up thing is. like. Maybe in other premises, desire is a choice, right? So I can look at my partner on any given day and start to build the case of evidence to love her more or desire her more, or I can start to find things that are wrong with her. I can start to do this. I can start to do that. So it's just, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's just lesbians. I think human beings everywhere, the most damage we cause to each other, at least in our society, right, is in these interpersonal relationships we we slay each other you know we we break up we leave we hurt people people take years to recover i've been on both sides of that you know and so it's like well regardless of the institution of marriage or whatever that means or doesn't mean what is our responsibility to see each other as complex individuals again right and to maybe not enter into not say i love you not say i'm there not if we can't and if it is an open relationship, then what are the rules of that right from the start? If it isn't, what does that mean? You know, in my experience, um, you know, I'm in the longest relationship of my life now, which is a grand eight years. But my experience there is we have to just make a commitment every day. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. So whether we got married or not, it doesn't matter. You can have a nice party, 
maybe get some gifts. But the bottom line is it's a choice. So it's just looking at that and saying, there's a lot of noise around this choice about um, marriage being indi indicator of equality, and I understand that fight. I understand that that was but the. There's like a, a, a conservative element to that as well that I, I have heard and read about where there's a group saying, well, why are we fighting for this when in fact maybe everyone should be fighting against the idea of getting married? Yeah, I think my understanding of it is that. You know, that fight was taken on by gay ag um, activists who have a long history of making political change. And the reason they took that particular fight is that it was such a hot issue. And it was it was so easy to see how different people saw us. And it's symbolism, too. And I think that... Um Symbolism is very powerful. Yeah. Like, it's not whether... Every, it's not like you have to get married. No. So it's not like you, you have to get married now, but it is that idea that we should be given that choice because we're just like you are. But, you know, one of the ideas in the in the play is that the, the family keeps asking, why aren't you married? You can. Wasn't that the big what the big fight was all about? And Hale is trying to, in her own clumsy way, explain, no, that's not what it's about. And... They're very confused by that. Like, why wouldn't you get married? You can now. You know, so I, I, I like I like a lot what the play is grappling with. And, the, I mean, besides expectation, you talk about committing to your partner over and over again. But, of course, we take that for granted with our family. Um, but there are choices people make as to what degree they're going to be involved with their family and who they're going to call their family. And so the fact that she goes back obviously means she has that, still has that deep connection. Yeah, and that's absolutely other, another huge set of ideas that the play grapples with, you know, is, you know, what is our responsibility to our family of origin? What is our, what does a grown-up do, right? Like, that's probably the central question of, a, of the play. What does a grown-up do? And that will do it for the art support today. Um, you know, you've gotten your dose of tattoo shop sounds, coffee shop sounds, and uh, and some really great interview sounds, I like to think. Um, thank you so much uh, for to Jan for uh, speaking with me this morning. Um, some other plays of hers include Dog of My Understanding, The Opposite of Everything is True, A Modern Woman's Guide to Female Impersonation, and more. Uh, she's got a great really impressive resume uh, and actually her f short film Sanity for Beginners can be seen at this year's Queer Film Festival as part of uh, the Coast is Queer shorts series which we will be talking about next week on the Arts Report. She was also named uh, Remarkable Woman, one of the Remarkable Women of uh, 2012 by the City of Vancouver. You can check out all her work at janderbyshire.com and the play will be running at the Roundhouse tomorrow and Friday uh, at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, they'll be at 3 p.m. matinee. And then on Monday and through Wednesday of next week, plays will be on 7.30 p.m. And, uh, you know, uh, you can check her out. Uh, you know, we had a kind of a deep conversation there about relationships and marriage and growing up. Obviously, very thoughtful play but also looks very funny and you can click through uh, if you like through the arts report post on citr.ca so as i mentioned that'll do us for this week i would really really love to hear you guys uh tell me what you think about the arts report i guess it's been 
four or five months now that I've been hosting. And please do send in your feedback at arts at CITR.ca. Uh, and, uh, you know, any other feedback that you have, you can also send it to Facebook or to uh, CITR, their support on Twitter. So thank you to Jan Derbyshire, uh, Jennifer Little from uh, Glitter Machine, Tracy Cake from Glitter, uh, sorry, Glass City, um, Isaac Terpstra, which we will hear online soon, Joel Klein from the Queer Arts Festival, as well as Teresa Buckmiller and Rosamund Norbury from the uh, Visual Arts Exhibition. And of course, Andy from the city. Thanks for telling us about the Olympics and art. I also played some music by Rachel Iwasa, some beautiful piano. She's actually a doctor of music from UBC, and you can check her out at iwasa.com. Peace. <laughs>